microphone this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all here. If you weren't able to make the Christmas party, you missed it. Uh, it was a beautiful night. Um, Liz and Linda, what do we say? Thank uh, you. That hardly seems enough. <laughs> yeah. Words cannot describe that sight. So, uh, yeah, it, it gave me it gave me all the the next give me all the uh, the examples I need next time I teach a series on vulnerability. <laughs> so, yeah. So, thank you for such fun, and uh, it's a beautiful night to. To honor Wayne as well, uh, and uh, that was, I think, the, the highlight of the night uh, for all of us. So uh, that was a, a beautiful part of the evening. Um, thank you as well for your your generous Christmas gift to our family. You're always incredibly generous, and um, thank you. It's been a unusual week. Um, it's been finals week, and so there's all of that. Uh, I never, I, I try really hard not to complain about my job, um, so I'm not going to. Um, I have a lot of people sort of they, they work really, really hard 50 weeks out of the year, then they're lucky they get two weeks of vacation. Um, as a teacher, I have final exams twice a year, so I, I work really hard two weeks of the year. <laughs> and then the other 50 are pretty cushy. Right? So, so this was one of my weeks, so I had to work hard. Right? So... Um, so I'm not expecting any sympathy. <laughs> so, uh, and I know none, none given. So, <laughs> yeah. But that um, I just want, I did want to share one thing with you because it's been on my heart all week. Um, some of you may have heard um, the Milligan communities was kind of shocked last Sunday. Uh, one of our graduates from ten years ago, young woman. Uh, who all of us loved. She was voted by the faculty as our most outstanding senior in 2005. Um, last Sunday, uh, best we can tell from police reports, um, her husband uh, shot and killed her before shooting himself. And uh, left three daughters under 10 years old. And yeah, it's just trying to get your head around that. Um, trying to think about their parents, um, both uh, 
the husband and wife, their parents, trying to imagine what it would mean to grow up as those children, right? I mean, how, how could you ever make sense of that uh, over the course of your life? Um, so I appreciate your, your prayers for, for Rachel and her family and all the, all the friends and family involved. It's just been kind of a shockwave that, I mean, tragedy happens every day around the world and it's easy to be immune to it because it doesn't necessarily touch you specifically. But as we all know, when tragedy has a name and a face and somebody that you cared about, it feels very different. And so uh, appreciate your prayers for, th for that and for the Milligan community and all the, the folks um, in Ohio who are, who are grieving. And yeah, this is the, the day of Advent, the Sunday of Advent, where, where we try to be reminded to celebrate joy. And it's, it's been a little harder this week for me than most Advents, honestly. Um, still trying to find the joy in all of that. Um, so grateful for your, your prayers. So today and next Sunday, we're going to try to wrap up uh, our series on vulnerability. Um, I've had a few questions about what's the next series, and uh, I'll be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's why I'm grateful this year that Christmas and New Year's fall on Sunday because <laughs> we don't have Sunday school those two days and so I get two weeks to figure that out. <laughs> so um, yeah, there you go. A little honesty. I'm trying to, I've got some suggestions from you all, good suggestions. I just haven't decided which one I want to take yet. Um, but something will, we, we will, we will have lessons and Sunday school in the new year. So for no worries. Uh, not that I thought you were <laughs> staying up at night worried about that. So we've been talking for several weeks about vulnerability. Um, and just to very briefly sort of summarize a little bit of where we've been because some of you haven't been able to be with us for all of it, or maybe any of it. So we've reminded ourselves that vulnerability just seems to be part of the human condition at one level. Uh, vulnerability uh, means this, this capacity to be wounded. And God just seems to have made us with the capacity to be wounded. So that's the first thing we've tried to get clear about is um, whatever we think of vulnerability, whatever our experience may be of it, um, it seems to be our lot as human beings. There isn't any way uh, to be a human being and not be vulnerable. That being said, 
The second thing to say is, most of us, most of the time, don't like it. Right? I mean, don't really like being vulnerable. I don't like being exposed. I don't like being wounded. I don't like, even if I'm not being wounded, I don't like knowing that I'm open to being wounded. And so, I and other human beings, um, either consciously or unconsciously, we devote a fair bit of energy, some more than others, to trying to protect ourselves, understandably, from being wounded. So we can come up with all kinds of self-protective strategies to keep ourselves from being wounded physically, right? We have a, we want to be secure. That's fair. Um, emotionally wounded, right? We want, you can be sort of emotionally guarded in order to keep from being emotionally wounded. And on and on and on, right? I mean, we just, we have, because we're aware that we can be wounded and we know the experience of being wounded is not something that we uh, cherish, um, we have a lot of strategies for avoiding it or protecting ourselves. What we've been trying to discover and explore together for the last several weeks is what if we have to say more than it's just our human lot? What if it's the case that our being vulnerable isn't just sort of accidental, incidental, to God's design of human beings. But what if it's integral? What if our vulnerability is integral, central, pivotal to what it means to be human? And it is because we're created in the image of God who is God's self vulnerable. What if Human beings are vulnerable because we're made in the image of a God who is vulnerable. Now it seems like if, if that's so, at least in my imagination, I don't know about yours, but in my imagination, if that's so, that, that shifts a little bit, maybe a lot, about how I think about vulnerability and maybe even how I experience vulnerability. If I think of it not as I normally do, primarily as a weakness to be compensated for, or a limit to be avoided when possible, or something to sort of protect against. But maybe there might, there might at least be some times when vulnerability might be embraced. Because certain types of vulnerability actually make us more human in the ways that God desires us to be human because they actually make us more like God. So that's what we've been trying to wrestle with. That's a lot. And so we've been looking at some familiar stories. We've been looking, we've looked at the, the crucifixion narratives on Christ the King uh, Sunday uh, several weeks ago. We've been looking some at the familiar infancy narratives, looking at other stories of Jesus, looking at other stories of, about God and the rest of Scripture, just to think about where do we see God's 
vulnerability revealed. And what does it mean to think about God's vulnerability? Um, what, what if God's vulnerability were the first thing we thought of when we thought about the God revealed in Jesus Christ rather than what's typically, for me, it's easy to think of when you say the word God just to think of sort of raw power. We talked about the, that in Jesus we see that God's power is the power to love and freedom. And that God's vulnerability is in the service of love because, you know, love, love is vulnerable, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing about loving or being loved that is anything other than vulnerable. And so even for God, I mean, God, God, there's vulnerability in God's love. God's created us for connection. God has created us for connection. And, and that connection brings great beauty into human life. Um, one of the things that we cherish most, if not most, I, I, I want to say most, it's hard to imagine, at our best, when we're thinking rightly, not always the case, right? Uh, but when I'm thinking rightly, what I most cherish about human life is connection, isn't it? Um, I still remember uh, when the professor that I wrote my dissertation under at Duke, when he was dying, um, he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not so afraid of death as I am sad about the people that I, I just feel like I, I miss. I, I'm not going to be connected to these people, right? I mean, that, that's what he feared. That's what, that was the part of death that sort of uh, distressed him in his last days, was being disconnected from people, right? And I think all of us at some level can resonate with that. I mean, that, and again, the great hope that Christians have, of course, in the resurrection, um, isn't simply that life will be unending, right? There's nothing, there's nothing necessarily good about life that's unending unless it's a life worth enduring, right? I mean, what, we, what we're promised is re reconnection, right? That somehow we remain in God's hands at death, right? That, that even that image, right? That we are held in God's hands at death. This, this notion that we are not alone even in death, which is that perhaps greatest primordial fear of human beings. But part of it is, is that, that deep sense of disconnection because we're made for connection. So there's great beauty. The, the most beautiful things in human life are about connection. But the truth of the matter is that connection also makes possible wounding. It does. And there, you can't have one without the other in human life. Um, I suspect 
for most everyone in this room, myself included. The deepest wounds I bear to this day are wounds brought about by people whom I'm deeply connected to, not strangers, right? Not strangers, people close enough to me, connected enough to me to wound me deeply. And I suspect that's the case for you as well. So great, great beauty in human life, but also the possibility of being wounded deeply. This, this is us. But it's also God, right? And that's what we're trying to get our heads around. This is also God, that God draws near to us and is open to our pain and confusion and woundedness. And so today I thought we would look at just a, a couple examples that we haven't raised. We've alluded to one, we haven't talked about the other one hardly at all, where we see this revealed in familiar stories. So I thought we'd start with uh, Matthew's uh, narrative of the nativity of the birth. Uh, you know that Matthew and Luke are where we get our uh, stories about Jesus' birth. And you also know, if you're careful, that they're very different. Um, in our imagination, we sort of just kind of smash them together, right, and make up one big Christmas story, which is, is fine at one level. Uh, but it's, it's also, when we were talking about the Gospels being portraiture, uh, the Gospels are sort of portraits of Jesus, and each one has its, just like if, you know, we had a portrait maker come in and four different portrait makers make a portrait of Frank, right? I don't know why we do that, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Just go with me, Frank, okay? Just, uh, all four would be different. Okay, all four would somehow reveal something unique about Frank that give us a different window into, into Frank. They wouldn't be identical. Um, and that would be the beauty of it. Um, and so we have two very different stories about the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's story has no, has no stable. I might be surprised to find that out. Uh, best we can tell, I mean, there's no shepherds. Um, there's no going to, uh, going to Bethlehem to be, you know, counted or taxed or any of that. That's Luke. Okay. Um, Matthew's story, as much as anything, is really told from Joseph's sort of point of view, if you will. The portrait is more kind of angular from Joseph's point of view, where Luke um, it's more Mary's story in some ways, right? The angel comes to Mary uh, in Luke, and you have Mary's song that we, we heard if you were in the contemporary service this morning, the journey service. Um, 
angel comes to Joseph in Matthew and reveals that Mary's going to have a son, a child. And this is disconcerting to Joseph. He's engaged to Mary. Right? They're to be they're to be married. I mean, so Joseph's trying to think about what to do, thinking that maybe he knows this is going to be a scandal. And, and maybe he should just break off the engagement quietly so it doesn't bring more shame. But the angel encourages Joseph to take Mary as his wife. But enormous vulnerability here, both on the part of Mary and Joseph. And I want to suggest, God, why would you do this? Right? I mean, it's peculiar enough, I mean, to the outside observer, it's peculiar enough that if you're the God of the universe, who determines to come to this planet in human flesh that you would come as a Jew in the midst of the mighty Roman Empire. Why not come as a Roman? <laughs> that would make a little more sense, right? But to come as a part of this, you know, once nomadic <coughs> tribe that's now settled in a kind of, you know, crossroads of the world, but does it pretty much. I mean, it's it's seen its glory days, uh, short-lived as they were, um, and now it's just sort of tucked away. And you're so you're coming as a as a Jew. <coughs> But now you're coming in this situation that invites scandal. And it's not like Mary and Joseph created a scandal. It's not like God, I mean, God creates a scandal. Right? And the, this, this, it's not like God couldn't have seen this coming. Right? Um... I imagine all of you can remember growing up in your teenage years and maybe knowing someone in your school or in your town who was pregnant out of wedlock. You know the conversations that go on, right? You know the whispers. You know the looks. You know what people are thinking. Why would God come that way? What's the point of that? It's just, it's sort of striking, I think. Um, and it's hard to imagine. I mean, I, I think about what Mary and Joseph, I mean, are you going to tell people? 
Like, that'll settle the scandal. Right? That'll worked in your high school, right? It's not what it looks like. Really, it's not. Uh, and you're right, Joseph's not the father. It's true. But it, it's not what you think, right? The, the child is from God. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Liz? What's funny? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just, it is laughable for us, right? I mean, no, it would have been very hard to have said, but of course, it's very reasonable. Um, and, it's, and we have a little glimpse of this even in the Gospel of John, sort of tucked away when Jesus is having a debate with uh, some folks uh, about Father Abraham in sort of an aside in their response to him, they say, um, we aren't illegitimate children. We have Abraham as our father. It's like, well, I wonder what that's about, yeah. right? So into his 30s, Jesus perhaps is still known as that. Okay, so he's a great teacher. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a prophet, but doesn't look like it. I mean, what kind of, I mean, how could he be who people says he is if that's the way he came into the world? Just, not just wrapped in swaddling clothes, but sort of wrapped in scandal. Why does God take that chance, which just seems to potentially undermine Jesus' credibility before he's even born. Think about that. I mean, lots of people feel like, and it's true, you think about, you hear about people's difficulties growing up and you think, gosh, you know, the deck was stacked against you before you even got started. Jesus isn't born yet. And it feels like the deck's, the deck's stacked against him. Why would God do that? Now, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. If I'm not God, then you know that. Uh, if you know anything after five years, you know that. Uh, but maybe God, God has, one of the things we've been trying to remind ourselves is how willing God seems to enter in to our life to its very depths. And I don't know if you've ever experienced anything in your life that brought you deep shame, uh, that had people talking about you, where you felt enormously vulnerable because there was nothing you could do to silence the voices around you, what could you say? It's fascinating to me. It's moving to me 
that the story we tell says that that experience is not completely unfamiliar to God made flesh. So when Matthew announces that this is this is going to be God with us, it's not God with us in any kind of generic way. But God is with us in our shame, in our embarrassment, in our scandal, even. Maybe even a scandal that's not deserved. Right? Maybe you've had people talking about you and you thought, you know, they're just wrong about me. But you can't stop the voices anyway. Because people will talk. That's not unfamiliar to God-made flesh either. And of course the scandal doesn't stop there. I mean, a number of times Jesus himself invites scandal. I mean, one of the things that scandalizes him the most, that scandalizes the his uh, people around him the most is that he doesn't seem to understand that the company he keeps reveals something about him. Right? This is what scandalizes people. <coughs> Think about, and one of the, this is sort of a side comment, but one of the striking things about God's vulnerability um, We've talked about how hard it is for us to be vulnerable and ask for help to receive the welcome and the love of other people. A lot of us find it easier to serve rather than be served. And one of the, one of the most shocking things about the life of Jesus is more times than not, he is the recipient of hospitality, not the host. Right? I much prefer to be the host. I get to be in control there. Right? I get to make other people feel good. Right? Um, a lot harder for me to be the recipient, to, to, to let someone do something for me. We often forget that about hospitality. It's a beautiful thing to offer hospitality. We also have to remember that that's, there is a power dynamic in, in, in hospitality and welcome. And Jesus is often the guest, most often the guest. Um, in Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus is the guest of Simon. Um, and... This is the famous story in Luke where while Jesus is reclining at table, a woman comes in who apparently has some reputation in town, finds herself at Jesus' feet and begins weeping. Um, those tears fall on Jesus' feet the woman lets down her hair, which in that day is scandalous, lets down her hair and wipes Jesus' feet, the tears on her feet, with her hair. 
And Simon says, how can you do, how can you let her do that? Jesus, Simon has probably invited Jesus because he's a Pharisee. Pharisees are all over the board on Jesus. Simon might have been one of those people who thought, you know, he might be a prophet. But it's pretty clear now he says, no prophet would, would allow himself to be in the midst of this scandal and just let it happen. Doesn't he know who she is? Doesn't This is scandalous. And yet Jesus uses the opportunity to hold her up as an example of what of, of being, of offering a beautiful gift to Jesus that Simon didn't offer. So Jesus' life is, seems to be full of scandal. Of course, he dies in a scandalous way. So before he's born to his death, scandal. <laughs> scandal. The other part of Matthew's story that we don't often know what to do with, and we don't... We like the part about the Magi. Uh, makes great Christmas cards. Um, you know, how many of you in a Christmas pageant at some point in your life got to be one of the Magi? Got to wear the bathrobe? Yeah. Got to wear the gold crown, you know. Got to walk in while the congregation was seeing We Three Kings. Right, it's a beautiful pageant, right? Of course, they only show up in Matthew. Um, which is, again, not minimizing that, but that's what, what, all kinds of reasons why they show up. But of course, it's the parts around that that we don't necessarily have in our Christmas pageants with our children up there, for good reason. Right? For good reason. Because when you think about, when I think about all the titles that we have for Jesus, right, Son of God, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, all of these things. One that I don't really ever think about is Jesus, the refugee. Right? Jesus, the refugee. Because he's, you know, he's running for his life. His life is under threat. And you and I can say, but God had it under control. And you and I can believe that, and that's easy to say with hindsight, but it's hard to imagine that Mary and Joseph were absolutely certain that was the case. And just the sheer horror of it, right? That Herod gets wind that there's a rival king being born. And so he has the Magi come and sort of trying to get them to figure out like where he is and you know come back and tell me so I can come and worship him. Yeah, right. 
Um, and so they're, they're told to get out of town. And so they go to Egypt. They don't know how they got there. Don't know. I mean, but no doubt they had to have been taken care of along the way. <laughs> and when they got there, I mean, there was a fairly well-established Jewish community in Alexandria. Maybe they went there. We don't know for sure. But think about that. God come in the flesh has to escape a murderous empire where in a whole town children to and under are slaughtered because they're looking for you. We don't tell that at Christmas time. I'm not saying that we should in our Christmas pageants, right? But that's, that's, so Jesus is a refugee, begins his life as a refugee. Yesterday I got in the, got a Christmas card from uh, someone and on the front of the Christmas card is, one, is a painting by one of my favorite artists. You won't be able to see it, but I'll leave it up here. It's by the Chinese artist Ha Chi. Um, and it's of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus escaping to Egypt. Uh, yesterday seemed like refugee day. Um, because I went to dinner last night uh, to a Christmas party, found myself at a table with a couple I didn't know. And it turns out they're from Liberia and they spent 16 years 16 years in a refugee camp in Ghana in the wake of the Civil War 16 years ever since they told me that last night I have not been able to get my head around that in a camp with 60,000 people. Extraordinary story that they told about how they ended up in the United States. I mean, it's, they, they both consider it to be God's greatest blessing and their greatest burden. The U.S. had a program um, that they applied for to be accepted as refugees into this country. 10,000 people out of the 60,000 in that refugee camp applied. Four were accepted. Four. So he was one of them, and he got to bring his family. They have four children. So they feel like they won the lottery, except they believe in God, so they don't think it was the lottery. But can you imagine how burdened they feel 
all the people that were left. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary. It, it, it was such a crazy evening because we're, we're talking to them and we found out before they came to East Tennessee, they lived in New York and we thought that's where they'd come and moved into. And it turns out the person next to me had just mentioned that he'd just come from Indianapolis um, for a funeral. And they said, well, we lived in Indianapolis. That's where we first were. The, the, the family that helped relocate us was from Indiana. And so we lived in Indianapolis for the first several years. And the father said, and, and, my, and my kids went to Eastbrook Elementary School. That's where I went to elementary school 50 years ago. Yeah, so I, I don't even know. I've just been, my head's been kind of spinning since last night. Um, so it's one thing, I mean, there are, there are 60 million refugees and misplaced people around the world. It's overwhelming. I mean, no one, I mean, if we knew what to do, we couldn't take care of it. It's just overwhelming. Um, and I want to have joy in Advent. I want to have joy at Christmas. But I also want to remind myself that there are people around the world who feel alone and abandoned and who have very little hope. Um, and God knows what that's like. God knows what that's like because God was a refugee. Okay. God was a refugee. So God, that, that experience is not completely foreign to God made flesh. And on this third Sunday of Advent, as we continue to th be both overwhelmed um, by the, the brokenness of the world and our vulnerability and the vulnerability of our neighbors near and far, uh, may we be reminded much, much again that we worship and serve and love and adore a God who is more vulnerable than we know. And there is comfort in that um, because on the days when we feel alone in our own vulnerability, feel exposed in our own vulnerability, God is Emmanuel. God is with us. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy and breathtaking vulnerability, we We stand amazed and in awe when we think about the depth to which you have entered into our humanity.
We pray that we might feel you in our experience of vulnerability and we pray that we might be willing to do what you have done, which is to take the risk of stepping into our neighbor's vulnerability, to sit with them, to be present to them, to share their vulnerability, and in so doing, bring your presence to them and draw us deeper into communion with you. We pray this through Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs>